Uh, hello, and welcome to an evening with the remaining Backstreet Boys. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, my name is Chris Thurston, and this is the beginning of episode 235 of The Crate and Crowbar. I should have right. checked that in advance. We should probably also introduce ourselves. Uh, I'm Chris Thurston. I'm the writer and designer for an indie hacking MMO called Hackmode. I also used to work for PC Gamer and do a bunch of games channels, including Eurogamer and other places. This is Tom Francis. Who's that? Mm. <laughs> Worst possible time to take a drink, sorry. Yeah. I was really like, trying to strategize that, and it did not pan out. No. Hello, I'm Tom. <laughs> Damn it. More? <laughs> uh, I'm Graham Smith. I'm the editor of Rock, Paper, Shotgun. I have not done this since last year it raised. Wow. He's a rare drop, Graham, but you've got mm. <laughs> And this is Alex Wiltshire, who you'll mostly know is the man responsible for ruining two previous episodes of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the sporadic, chaotic element. You say it's never my fault. I feel the need to okay, apologise. Let's not do this fault. here. There are people. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> Alex, who are you? So uh, I used to work on Edge magazine. I write for Rock Paper Shotgun. I write for PC Gamer. I'm a journalist and writer and stuff. Stuff. <laughs> if you're not aware of Tom, because I feel like he was a little bit possibly too modest, he's the man responsible for. Uh, I was the designer on Gunpoint and Heat Signature. Cool. Thanks, Tom. No worries. What we're going to do today is going to be a little bit different to the regular format. We are going to talk about games that we've enjoyed from the show here that uh, we've played or seen or know about. Um, and uh, that is because this is the end of the day. If this is your only day at rest, then this is absolutely useless to you as a recommendation system. Um, so in a sense, it forms more like a bingo card. Uh, if you do complete the set, we all vanish like a bejeweled. Um, if you, we should start with the game that was announced at res, I believe. Oh, mm, Graham. Put my water back down. <laughs> uh, I've played Order of Magnitude, which is the new game from Introversion, um, developers of most recently Prison Architect. No, not most recently Prison Architect. Most recently... Scanner Somber. Somber. Yes. yes. But before that, Prison Architect, and Prison Architect is more relevant in this instance, as you'll see. Order of Magnitude is a hard sci-fi strategy management game about rebuilding humanity in space. It's set in the future when Earth has been destroyed through methods that are not fully explained in the build that I've played, anyway. Asteroid. Asteroid, is it? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, okay, okay, that gets me on. I just yeah. wasn't paying attention. Because <laughs> I was hoping it was going to be a DEFCON sequel, and that's why it was uh, destroyed, but not, apparently not. Earth is still there. It's just like the charred remains with still fires burning on the surface yeah. of it, and you can see it. And, um, and in the demo that's here, you're building a colony on the moon, um, and it's hard sci-fi in the sense that you have to worry about the things that you might have to worry about if you were building a colony on the moon, like where is your energy coming from, where is your water coming from how are you recycling your water and your oxygen in order to continue to survive on this surface and it's taking place in a 3D world which is or 3D solar system, which is being properly simulated as you're playing. So you can be building a colony on the surface of the moon, and then you can zoom out from there and go visit Jupiter or Mars or any of the other planets in our solar system. Um, and the, the, the build that they've got here, they're, they're describing it as being pre-alpha. It's very, very early, but there are hints in the build that you will be eventually able to travel between the planets, have colonies on multiple different planets, and be dealing with the logistics of that. Now, obviously, Introversion have made a strategy management game before. They played Prison Architect. Prison Architect, if you haven't played it, was very much concerned with toilets and and sadness about toilets. (laughs) Um, As you were basically dealing with the moods and emotions of your prisoners that were under your care and, and your charge, depending on how you look at it. 
and they would get very angry in a, in a dwarf fortress sort of way and start smashing stuff up if things were broken and that sort of thing. There is little people walking around your, your colony in order of magnitude, but it doesn't seem to be their intent to simulate things on that kind of granular scale. Instead, there's two things going on. One is, is you can set policies for your colony, so you can do things like forbid religion, forbid procreation, and that sort of stuff, and that will obviously have some sort of effect on the population that are living in that particular colony. <laughs> but then there's also this kind of grander macro-scale stuff that's going on in that uh, there is like a, logis- a logistics overview, and you can see how your buildings are relating to each other, and then presumably how your colonies are relating to each other, um, because a big part of it seems to be how are you getting the resources that you need in order to survive. And that's, that was sort of the coolest moment in the demo for me. Like, the demo is, as I say, very early, and it's, it's mostly a tutorial which just takes you through, put down this building, now put down that building, now put down this building. But there is a moment where it asks you to, like, scan the planet for ice, and all you're doing is like flicking on a, an overlay, like a resource overlay, which highlights ice under the surface. But in order to be able to see that ice, you have to zoom out first. So you zoom, you've, you've been staring at this little colony in front of you this whole time, and then you zoom out into the planetary scale. And at that point, you're, you're thinking about it in a way that you weren't a moment ago, because now you're thinking about things that are on the other side of the, the moon that you're on. Um, and so if they can then do that, to a greater order of magnitude, hey, see where the name comes from, then I think that could be a really cool thing. Um, but it is pretty early at this stage, so it's, it's hard to see exactly where they're going to go. Did they say to you how long it has been in development? Nine months. They did. <laughs> they, the cool thing about uh, it being all in a simulated place as well is that, like a lot of these games, it's got a, a time scale thing where you can have it like fast forward, super fast forward. Um, and as you're doing that, you'll just see like the sun go past and mm. the earth go past. Um, and it has this, it's actually like a little bit dizzying because <laughs> mm-hmm. you can kind of feel you're on the spinning thing um, in the solar system. Uh, Chris also said that uh, once you like have your moon colony established, um, the next thing to look into is like rocketry. And mm. once you build a launch pad, there isn't just like a ship that you just click on and build. There's just ship parts, so you have to just design your own ship. And it's like, cur- it becomes, like anywhere near Kerbal. Yeah, so basically like Kerbal Space Program plus colony management game. Right, plus an off-world trading company. Yeah, a little bit. Right. I'm disappointed there's no, there's no sewage management. <laughs> I think because that's an important well, thing. Like in, I've seen a documentary <laughs> called The Martian. Well, there sort, of, there sort of is. Like you build treatment plants and then you can take your poo and your pee and you can recycle it into... Mm. Not those things. Anything else? Delicious food, I'm sure. <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty cool. <laughs> I had something else I was going to say, and it and it vanished from my brain. It's because of the poo and we yeah, chat we've gone to already. Um, so, what are the sort of limiting factors? You kind of when you're building the base, did you get a sense of kind of placement stuff being important, and you know you kind of managing space and things like that? There wasn't in the build that I played, no. But, but that was what I was going to say. Actually, was the thing of this, the, seeing the sun go by as, as you're just building, and that's like a neat novelty and it is slightly dizzying, but it, it does have some relevance to the stuff you're building because 
that's the thing of it being hard sci-fi is you get two weeks of sunlight and then you get two weeks of darkness. And so you need to be storing enough energy from your solar panels in order to be able to survive those two weeks of darkness. Now in the build that's there, it's a tutorial and that's, that's, it's trivial in order to do that. Like there's, you can just build seemingly infinite amounts of stuff and there's no resource cap or anything like that. But I'm assuming that that's going to come into play more as you're building on planets which perhaps have more darkness and less sunlight. It's and quite a rim world it's thing. Just a tutorial. bit of rim world there, isn't mm. it? Mm. Yeah, there is. Yeah, I was asking if they, obviously that has the potential to be disastrous. <laughs> like if yeah. you don't have enough energy and you've got like another 20 days before sunrise, uh, that's a problem. Uh, I was asking, so like, is it going to be that kind of knife edge to disaster kind of sim? Um, and Chris said, uh, doesn't think they do want to go in that direction. Like you have this cryopod of, of colonists that's just out in space and that's where you guys came from. If you fuck it all up, there's still some more over there and you can bring them up. <laughs> <Thanks. laughs> Don't worry, everyone. We've got some more. <laughs> yeah. There's always colonists in the banana and as nothing. <laughs> Cryo banana. Yeah, exactly. Fishing for podcast titles. <laughs> what have you seen, Tom? Because you came down today, right? Yes. So I've seen only that. Okay. I've just got it. <laughs> um, do we want to talk about only stuff here? or No, that's fine. Because I did dip my toe briefly into Crusader Kings 2. Huh. <laughs> which is not the best game to dip your toe briefly into. How? Um, I played the tutorial, which, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, more significant than most tutorials, um, and it ends when you die of old age <laughs> at 40. <laughs> so it's quite, like, there's a lot to it. And I, the main thing I wanted to know is, like, I knew that um, from many, many stories from this game that it definitely has the kind of complexity and depth that I like, uh, and also the, the generates, like, really characterful and interesting stories. But the main thing I wanted to know is, like, is it just kind of a pain in the ass to play and understand and get to grips with? Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, not so much that I couldn't at least... Uh, I guess I haven't completed the tutorial. I guess I'm like, I must be like 38 now. I'm going to die soon. It'll, it'll be over before long. Uh, but the, the tutorial is basically just the game, except they, t- they sort of guide you and tell you what to do next. Um, and the only difference where, where, is... Which king or, or queen or I'm Dutch? I'm someone, saw. Alfonso of Lyon, okay. which is near Portugal, except there isn't a Portugal, I don't think, yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, the, one of the like, rules of the tutorial is no one will declare war on you. You're basically safe. Uh, no one will declare war, and also you can't have any internal problems. <laughs> so they just kind of put it in, in basically safe mode until you die. So your, your job is to just die. Yeah, that That's doesn't end the game, though, because it's, it's oh, like a lineage thing. So you play as, as, I think, your brother is your heir initially, although actually um, uh, one of your ambitions can be to start a family and have uh, you know, children who will inherit, and then just play as them when, mm. when you die. Mm. Um, Given that they make it so that nothing can go wrong, quite a lot went wrong <laughs> in my 38 years, or I guess, I'm not sure what age I started at, but however long I've been playing. Um, I mostly through not really understanding how anything worked, and my first ambition was to, uh, you can actually choose what your ambition is, but it suggests get married, so I did. Um, and <laughs> it wasn't quite that, like, so I chose that ambition is what I mean. Uh, and then you get a list of all the people you could possibly marry. And they have all these stats about like diplomat- diplomacy, intrigue, um, I think like military leadership and that kind of things. And then you mouse over them and it tells you like quite good in-depth tooltips about what this thing does. And there's one stat that every time I mouse over it, nothing came up. It's just like, you know, 25, 16, 10, 4, yeah, 8. Yeah, no. <laughs> like, 
oh, that's their age. <laughs> One of my options is a four-year-old girl to marry. <laughs> so I, th I think I won't do that. <laughs> And there was one person in particular who had, uh, she was a masterful diplomat. I think she had a diplomacy of 12. And then what really uh, sold me on this uh, romantic <laughs> prospect was that her, uh, her espionage skill was like 16. <laughs> she was like a naturally gifted spy master. I feel like you just got ahead of, out ahead of someone's question from the audience. <laughs> um, so naturally, I married her and also hired her as my spy master. <laughs> and then. I never saw her again. <laughs> yeah, <that would> <laughs> She's missing. From the Wait, didn't I get married? No, I suppose not. No, no. Um, and uh, the espionage thing—I forgot what the. I think it is. It just called espionage. I can't remember. But there's just a name for all that stuff: intrigue, espionage. Um, and you can use it to like build a spy network. Or um, I was trying to infiltrate the nation next to me because I wanted to. Uh, press my weak claim to it, which is just a thing it tells you you can do. You've got two weak claims you can be pressing. You and your weak claims, okay. Tom. I don't know. Are you saying I should do that, or are you saying I shouldn't do that? Because you're telling me it's weak, but you're also telling me to do it. So I thought, well, I should at least create a spy network in this country before I press my weak claim. That seems only polite. Um, and then shortly after, I couldn't press that weak claim. That was just gone. <laughs> I only had one weak claim I could press. Uh, and I'm not sure what happened to my spy network in that country or any of the things that I've done in that country. Um, it may just be ruled by someone else now. <laughs> so why now Crusader Kings 2? That's not a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely, it's like people go through their, am I capable of understanding Crusader Kings yes or no window <laughs> at different points in their lives. Yep. But why now for you? Uh, it was free recently. Oh, yeah, all right, that'll do. And that, the price wasn't stopping me before, but it just, like, everyone was talking about it again, and someone had once again linked the forums, which were amazing, because it's just like, how do I kill the Pope? And <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I couldn't press my weak claim to that country anymore, but there's one on my left, and I guess, I don't know what I did exactly, but I ended up at war with this country. <laughs> and Crusader Kings is kind of real-time. It's like real-time with pause. It's not turn-based. Um, and so a lot of the time it's just pause and you're managing all these menus and stuff. Um, and then I realized I'd actually be spending most of the game pause and all the stuff I've been sorting out. That, um, that was the reason my marriage wouldn't happen. I'd sent a proposal <coughs> and just silence for ages and I was just waiting and waiting. What's she going to say? I want to find out about my marriage proposal. And I realized it's because I paused the game. <laughs> as soon as I unpause, it's immediately, congratulations, you're married now. <laughs> it's that easy, apparently. Um, yeah. Um, so I ended up at war somehow <laughs> with... Uh, the other place that I had a weak claim to, and I still have the notification about pressing the weak claim there, so I still have a weak claim to there, to that country, but I don't seem to be able to do it anymore because now we're at war. Once you're at oh, war, if you I, can't if I remember that. correctly, you can't you can't declare war if you don't have a claim. So because otherwise, uh, so that, okay. that's, that's so a weak claim to war. Yeah, it's basically <laughs> I deserve this place in a very weak sense. <laughs> I'm going to let's have a fight. As possible but way, you can't have a fight if you've got no claim at all, I think. But I also can't press my claim because I'm at war. Like, it's I, think I can't do that now. I think you I press think a difference now. between <laughs> a claim and a, was a causes belly. Oh, yeah. So I think yeah. there are reasons that you can go to war. You do need a reason in order to start a war. And that's causes belly. Yeah, but it's not purely having a claim. I think you can press your claim, which is basically you just start like a marketing campaign in that country it says that you should be the so leader did you, of it did you assign a marketeer to the team yeah. you got some marketers PR I should have married a marketer not a spy <laughs> yeah. 
Also, um, also, if your wife has an espionage trait and it turns out that later yeah. in their relationship she comes to dislike you, that's a really yeah. bad trait for <laughs> yeah. that person to have because yeah. she's going to kill you when she's you sleep. She's going to come and kill you. Coming. Okay, but our daughter will inherit, so I'll just play as her instead. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I've got her either way. Perfect prenup. Yes. <laughs> if I die, I play as my daughter. It is weird, though, because like sometimes you kind of um, uh, play as a character the, the kind of the, the next in line is someone that you hated as the, as the, the one, you know, the, the parent or whatever because they're useless and kept yeah. trying to steal land from you and things. It, it keeps warning me that I've got a vassal inheritance problem which is not a problem I thought I'd have to deal with but um, uh, one of my vassals, if they die, it says, oh, someone else will inherit th- their thing, but it's my brother. So I'm like, oh, that's fine, isn't it? We're all, it's all in the family. <laughs> like, he was my heir at the time. Like, if I die, he gets it too. Um, but apparently that's a problem. And later I came to understand why that might be a problem, because after... Well, so first of all, all this was like paused, and then when I unpaused, I got married immediately. Uh, had a kid not long after that. And also, the war, which I didn't know had started, uh, unfolded at a terrifying pace. Where <laughs> it was just like, you've been defeated in this siege that I didn't know had started. And then before I could click OK to that defeat, a new thing had popped up to say, you've also been defeated over here. And that just happened like 12 times. Just every battle that I didn't know I was fighting all got... Um, uh, I got defeated in all of them, one after the other, before I could really do anything. I was still getting married. This is the tutorial. <laughs> you got wiped out yeah. in the tutorial. I don't know if I got wiped out. I can't see any of this stuff. I don't know where these places are I'm being defeated. I can't see any armies. I can't see any like, opportunities. I don't remember telling these people to attack, but I guess they're doing it really badly. Um, and it was only after I'd been at war with this guy for a long time. I, I tried some like negotiation tactics. Um, and like, would you like to give up your country in exchange for peace <laughs> and he says no <laughs> I'm winning the war uh, which was a reasonable point I couldn't really deny that at this point um, and then I started looking for someone to support I decided to plot to kill him naturally because my wife's a gifted spy and I felt like this was my one ace in, my, uh, in my hand and so I plotted to kill him and that didn't go anywhere for a long time it had like 92% plot strength I don't know what that means but I felt like if I got to 100 that would be uh, a good sign and you can invite people to support your claim so I went through the list you just click on it it pops up the list of all the people you can invite to support your claim um, and uh, the best person the person with the highest espionage score obviously caught my attention um, and it was a mayor or something and uh, I started talking to him and he loves money his ambition is to get loads of money so I just gave him some money um, and that's called a bribe yeah <laughs> uh, and he liked me 44 after that previously only liked me 2 then he liked me 44 so that's, that was a good move but it wasn't quite enough to get him to turn against um, uh, to help me kill this, this king and it shows you a breakdown of his reasoning. His reasoning is, number one, I'm amoral. So that's a point in the positive <laughs> column. Big tick mark for that. <laughs> number two, uh, I, my opinion of you is three green pluses. Good stuff, because I gave him um, all that money. And then opinion of the king is like shown as three red negatives, which at first I thought, great, he hates him. But actually it means, no, my opinion of the king is a reason there's three negatives against me joining your plot. So mm. like, he actually likes that king. Um, and then there's the natural reluctance, which is also three negatives, to killing, apparently. He's amoral, but he's got some kind of problem with killing. He takes Fine. bribes, but he's not a murderer. There's, 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 a, there's a rainbow of possibility in that, in that state. Um, and his, his opinion on the, on the king I was trying to kill fluctuated a little bit. Um, and after a while, I was examining the, the enemy king's armies, and I realized he's a commander in that army. <laughs> he's part of that nation. Like He works for that king. That might be why he had a bit of reluctance to do this. 
Um, and also around that time, I discovered this king is my brother. <laughs> it's also your brother. Yeah. The same it's the brother? same brother, actually. Oh, okay. The same brother? <laughs> yeah. So you're, that's why there was a vassal problem, Tom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, my brother's going to inherit it, which might not be a problem under normal circumstances, except I kind of declared war on him, apparently. <laughs> and he's winning dramatically. <laughs> How did you not know he was your brother? Um... There's a little, I guess there's a little, like, blood icon, and I didn't know what that meant for a while. I thought it meant, like, vampire. war. Uh. Yeah, vampire <laughs> or war. Uh, it turns out that means blood relative. Right. And it does, in fairness, if you mouse over him, it does say your brother in fairly prominent text. <laughs> I just, I didn't mouse over my enemies a lot. Like, that's just not a thing I thought to do. Also, at some point during this, it popped up to say that um, someone, someone had declared a new pope and a new anti-pope. <laughs> I wasn't sure. How does an antipope work? Is that like a matter antimatter thing where if they collide, it's a pure energy explosion? Or is it more like antipasty, where it kind of comes before the main pope and then you get the real pope? The starter. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Someone probably does, though, because that's almost certainly a real thing. If, if you know, tell us in the questions. Yeah, <laughs> please. That would be, yeah. Do you have more respect for toffs now? More respect for what? Toffs. Toffs. <laughs> I always respect toffs. <laughs> Are you going to keep playing Crusader Kings after the tutorial? Or? I don't know. Let, let's wait till I die of old age and see how I play. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been playing a game that Alex has also played prior to the show. But it's at the show. And if you're here tomorrow, definitely play it if you haven't already. Which is Disco Elysium. Uh, which is formerly, uh, was formerly called No, no Truce with the Furies. No truce, no truce, not Furies. Not Furies. No Truce with the Furies. Did they change it because of that confusion? Uh... If you ask them, they kind of get a bit slightly annoyed with you. <laughs> so try that. <laughs> so try that. That's a tip. So but it but is. The, the, the official reason is that that was the game. They, they, they started making that game, and it was meant to be a rather smaller game than the game ended up becoming. Right. They resituated it to a larger setting uh, in the same world, and they wanted a name that was going to be a bit more general and a bit more... Bankable, saleable, mm. I suppoise it's good it's like it. yeah. calling it's good, yeah, so this is a detective RPG um, with some incredible kind of art and writing actually to be honest, and um, I really knew nothing about it until you started playing Alex mm. and you talked told me about it last week, and then today I played it for an hour, which is uh, impolite <laughs> <laughs> and um, the reason I wanted to mention that is because it's what it is is it's um, it's a detective RPG where you wake up uh, hungover uh, with really no idea what you're doing or where you are um, with amnesia, which is a kind of a bit of a, a corporeal cliche for these kinds of games. But it works because your primary... In well, you have as many interactions with your own subconscious and the many different parts of your subconscious in the opening of the game as you do with other characters. And even when you're talking to other characters, you're also in a kind of state of constant negotiation with your limbic system or with... Um, your lizard brain, which is the first character you speak to, who basically just tells you, wouldn't it be great if you were just nothing forever and we could just <laughs> be asleep forever? Would that be nice? Because you wouldn't then be hungover. And that first conversation establishes how much you want to push to be conscious again. And then your limbic system pipes up and says, no, we should definitely be conscious. Yeah, exactly. And you have to, like, have a multiple choice dialogue with these two. <laughs> yeah. And this stuff is also your skill system, which is kind of amazing. So um, your, the skills have... Uh, it's in a kind of incredibly abstract range of uh, themes about your kind of being, about the kind of nature of yourself, 
like uh, your esprit de corps is one of them. One of them is just empathy. And all of these things develop as you speak to people and interact and try and determine who you are. And then they can sometimes kind of take over as well. So if you become, if you, you know, if you try and do something unempathetic, you get into a fight with your own empathy midway through a conversation with another NPC. And your, your empathy is voiced, I should stress. This is a character that you are kind of trying to deal with who is also one of your stats which is really interesting. It's like getting in a fight with your dexterity. Because these, these, um, like, these, these are like the equivalent of charisma and skill yeah, and strength. Right. Like you don't have strength and stuff, but you have 24 different skills. Yeah, and your inventory kind of spans a gear, but that's not very important because it's not really like a combat RPG in that way. But you also have thoughts. And thoughts are something that you kind of like plug into your brain for a certain amount of time. And after a certain amount of time has passed, they kind of grow into buffs, maybe, or debuffs. And it's almost like you're kind of keeping track of what's on your character's mind. So at one point, a character just tells you, like, get your shit together. You're a, you're a wreck. And you gain the thought. I can't remember exactly what it's called. Is it um, oh, like one, volumetric shit compression system? <laughs> um, not, not literal abstract. And it is like the kind of idle thought of, I should get my shit together. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a mess. So there's, there's another one a little bit later on where you, um, you're talking to this uh, uh, barman in this, um, in the, in the, downstairs in the hotel that you wake up in. And, um, and you know that he... So should I tell about the... Should we explain the plot? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. yeah. So you, you wake up, you don't know who you are. It's uh, amnesiac time. Uh, but you soon learn that you're a cop and that you are there to uh, investigate a body, a putrefying body which is hanging from a tree behind the hotel, and that your partner, new guy, that that you haven't known before, you definitely don't remember, uh, is waiting for you. So you go down to the bar and you talk to the barman, and and you you know that guy, guy isn't who you need to actually talk to. You need to talk to this woman who is there, and you start to ask him who she, he, he, where she is, and he won't answer you. And you find yourself that one of the, one of the multiple choice selections is, um, uh, he says, why did you keep asking me this stuff? Like, you know, why do you keep asking where she is? And you say, because I'm a feminist. <laughs> because it just occurs to you in that moment. Yeah. And this becomes a thought called uh, um, inexplicable feminist agenda, <laughs> which gives uh, you bonuses to uh, authority because you can go around saying actually I'm a feminist <laughs> that's, yeah like there's another conversation with a this is what's interesting about it because I, I appreciate you saying like that outside of the context of the game the game itself is extraordinarily humanitarian in how yeah. it writes the Very. whole process it's, it's like this is I think I think we were having a conversation about this earlier but it enters territory with its characters because it is set it's not set in a real country but it is set in a believable setting to a greater or lesser extent with the exception of your constant conversations with kind of embodied or personified... I do, I actually do something like that. Yeah. (laughs) But, like, well, actually, and this is the thing, um, that that one level of abstraction makes it feel super believable, gives you a profound sense of this character's internal life. And it is... The the writing is sufficiently mature Mm. that it can introduce levels of social awkwardness or way that conversations can go slightly awry that I've never seen an RPG do before. There's a conversation... Um, and that, you know, so there's, there's two conversations quite early. One is with uh, two shitty kids who are just the worst, and they're throwing stones at the corpse, and you want them to stop, and you're basically incapable of telling them to stop. And they are teenagers who are awful. They're terrible. And if you have ever been a polite adult trying to, st- like, trying to both appear cool, but also 
get a kid to sort of, like, you are given a kind of web of ways in which to kind of like, how do you do fellow kids your way through that conversation? <laughs> and almost all of them lead to total disaster, but not in a kind of like, you failed the conversation, therefore you don't get, you know, you know, shitty child will remember this, like, telltale thing. You get, like, that actual... Cause, and because you're also having these discussions with your own sense of pride, for example, like, your own sense of authority could be really badly undermined by the fact that a child has just gone, fuck off! And, and, you, and, and your off-center authority turns to you in your own mind and goes, like, yeah, we deserve that because we do suck. And, and like, um, and that's actually genuinely kind of... Um, Super engaging. Like, yeah. And there's another conversation uh, with uh, a, a racist lorry driver whose name is Racist Lorry Driver. Moment of determinism, but it's Yeah, and you choose whether you, um, he, he says something racist to your partner, and you choose, you choose as, uh, and he appeals to you because you are a white dude, he appeals to you as a fellow white dude to go with him in this. And you choose whether you sort of um and ah your way through that or whether you get very angry with him, whether you throw a punch, there's lots of different things that determine how you negotiate with it. But it feels very awkward in a good... If, if, yeah. if, if, it's, it's actually uncomfortable in that sort of way, and if it's because it does such a good job of articulating that character's internal life and creating... You, you shape who they are. So even though they fit into the trope of the kind of, you know, uh, loser cop that doesn't remember where they are you determine kind of who they are trying to be in a way that... Because the skills are really broad. Like, there, there are four different kind of um, areas of skills. Mm. 24 divided by four is... Six. There are six in each. Of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, there's, uh, there's one that's about um, uh, uh, sort of motor skills, so good at moving. There are others just about physical skills, about sort of asserting yourself physically. Some authority is part of that one. There's one about empathy, and there's one about um, encourage, like sort of uh, uh, influencing others. Mm. So these, those are the broad kind of um, areas of skills. And because it, I, I really thought it, was, uh, it really captures the, the pen and paper role-playing game experience, where it's mm. that huge space that you can act, and your decisions are kind of uh, controlled or at least kind of guided by the skills that you have. But actually, you have a lot of space within them to be the character you want to be. So he's an incredibly written character. Like, you know, but the fact is, he's a deadbeat. But if, you've got, if you're really empathetic or you're really good at uh, using machines or you're really good at noticing stuff, you feel like a badass cop because you are really good at a specific cop skill. Yeah. And you, as you investigate the body and the clues that you find around them, you'll be guided along these certain routes of knowledge gathering. And mm. you actually, you know, you respect this character, you find depth about that character, but you're also guiding that character, and the character is a result of the choices you made when you rolled it. Yeah, and that's what's really fascinating. It reminds me a lot of Torment, Titanumenaria, which I played which was my game of last year, I think, really, in balance. But Torment is an explicitly a fantasy setting, and it has a similar system, the tides of Numenera, like emotional kind of forces that uh, ebb and flow, like water might, and they can be used, and they can kind of be expressed as almost like magical powers and things, because that's very much a fantasy game. But it's still about how your internal life mirrors who you are in the outside world. And that is also a game about uh, not really knowing who you are and sort of deciding who you are, which I think is a philosophical thread that they have in common. And it's that philosophical thread that I find most interesting about it. Mm. Because there are aspects of uh, Disco Elysium that I think, um, in the hands of a less deft writing team or a less deft art team, 
could really, really not work. I was really all. worried when I was yeah. loading it up. I was thinking yeah. this could go well, wrong. Well, and, and so it's because it exists in that sort of like uh, sort of daytime noir, um, like six degrees of Nicholas Winding Refn kind of like area, right? Like and. Um, so, you know, it has a sort of tonal peer in some ways in Hotline Miami, in the sense of kind of, kind of deadbeat, nasty world where everything's kind of, uh, everyone's sort of, it's almost like a trip or something like that. And, um, and Hotline Miami 1 works because it's uh, such a, uh, basically a mood piece. It's, it, it's essentially a music video, a really very violent music video, but it doesn't kind of like aspire to like really embody characters beyond that. I, Hotline Miami 2 really did not work for me at all because it tries to do more with narrative, but it didn't do it with the sensitivity or the empathy to actually try and sympathize, like to actually explore the consequences of violent or negative action. It wasn't sort of funny at the same time. Like the thing that really, really impresses me about Disco Elysium is that it, it is capable of both being funny and sad yeah. and unsettling. And it, that's what makes it feel very human, even mm. though the character you're embodying, I think, at first glance, in this big dude with a mullet and a, a beard. Yeah, he's wearing, he, he, you kind of, he's, he wakes up and he's just wearing a pair of underpants and you have to find his clothes. And yeah. you do assume that, like, uh, it's, it's almost sort of cartoon like, like a kind of point and click adventure, you know, like the. the Sort of amusing, dead. Yeah. Like, uh, what's his name, Larry? You know. Yeah, um, I mean, it's grim, dark Sam and Max. Yeah, <laughs> that's the other way. There's a scene earlier on, isn't there, where you you go look at yourself in the bathroom mirror, and, yeah. it's all, and the mirror is all steamed up, and you wipe it off, and you see your face, and then you have a kind of debate with yourself about how, how hideous you think you look. But you can also apparently just not wipe the steam off that window. Yeah, like not decide to know what you look like. Yeah, yeah and so the, the whole the rest of the game, you just go around, and any time there's a picture of your face, the picture's blurry because you don't know what you look like. You're an amnesiac. And you didn't look in the mirror. So. And that's Oh, but if you do, you can kind of slowly pull this kind of rictus grin of like sort of, you know, like, yeah. I don't know what that is, but it's some sort of something within him kind of, kind of, kind of glaring out at him. All... And then he uses this face on people for the next, and everyone sort of... <laughs> but it's almost, it's almost like at the expense of the fact that it has like a Baldur's Gate style like panel system. And like you have a debate with yourself the first time you look yourself in the mirror saying, why do I always do this stupid face? Like, why am I doing this face now? I don't know why I'm doing this face. And you can decide you don't want to know why you're doing this face. Like, that's the level of yeah. kind of granularity. I have 600,000 words, the, uh, the script. Oh, I, <laughs> I can believe it. It's like, like it, presumably there are, you know, there, it, because skills uh, become more and more dominant as you pile points into them. They'll sort of, and they come with negative points and positive points. So Chris started to explain authority, and authority is about it is your ability to uh, have controlling will over others. Mm. But as soon as you are not getting respect, um, it can really act up. So I was in a conversation with um, uh, a woman, an older woman, who sort of. Who's, who's kind of kind to me, but I've, I've just been given the bill because I've smashed up my room and I can't afford it. So I chose to beg for money for her, from her. You can ask almost anybody Authority for money. was not pleased about this because I should not be begging for money. Like, you deserve this. What are you doing? Like this. If I'd pushed it, uh, the authority may have kind of made me hit her or I don't know what might yeah. have happened. I... But that's kind of like the, the, the kind of the... The, there's always a sort of a, a counterbalance to kind of powering up a skill. So you, it's not actually that good to have like very high power skills because they start actually 
controlling you. Yeah, there's a moment early on where you can choose to try and run out on that bill. Have you seen what happens if you say, I'm going to flee, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm fast, I believe that I'm fast. I like to think of myself as a fast, exciting man. I'm going to run out of this room like I'm in a John Woo movie. And you'd run and leap through the air sideways and give the guy the, the ups with both hands and go straight into that woman in her wheelchair. And then you have to deal with like, the mortifying social consequences of having done that. And the barkeeper's like, it's okay. Like, it's only a, like a, a 20 quid bill. Like, I, you, it's just awkward for everybody involved. And the, but you momentarily black out when that happens and have a conversation with yourself about why you did that. And you didn't, and that's kind of nice because the game shows made you do that. But there's an element of like, did I, I did this because I deserved to do this. Did you do I the autopsy? I'm not, but better not go into detail about this because like, this, is, this is all very much at the start of the game. Yeah, this is very much like first year. But did, did you do the autopsy? I did not. So, like, the autopsy, I won't tell you the details other than to say that it is incredibly detailed. Like, this is a very, very well-researched game. And the procedural side to it, like, you examine every aspect of the crime scene and then you start sort of... And it's got gross humour of the fact that you're kind of digging around in a corpse, like a, a long dead corpse. But also it's telling you about the precise contusions and then it's, it's really good. It's very, like, yeah. It's so really satisfying. Is there a like speechcraft equivalent skill, like a Speech. persuasion? Or there are so many. Yeah, there is there is a persuasion one. There's authority, and there's also um, oh god, what's, um, it's the equivalent of persuasion. Because um, uh, yes. I'm wondering, like those often unlock new conversation options in normal RPGs, and I'm wondering if when talking to your own personality traits, you could <laughs> use your persuasion personality trait to persuade your own. Well, so so th- I actually managed to access a bit of the game that I shouldn't have because it was those got bugged out, and I had a conversation I learned later that I shouldn't have had. I won't go into any details other than the fact that I was having a conversation with somebody, a character, and then a couple of my skills started saying. Oh, what a good point she's made. Yeah, yeah. That, oh, yeah, definitely should listen to this. Drama was going, yeah, do this. And then uh, volition <laughs> drama's skill. Yeah, drama's a really good one, because drama is like, you know, like, maybe you should just storm out. Yeah. <laughs> and then volition piped up and said, um, these, I think that some of these skills might be corrupted. I think they're telling you lies. I don't think you should believe them. I don't know which one it is, but you should be really careful. And this might mean that she's telling you lies. <laughs> and like, suddenly the conversation with her has taken like an about turn. Like, because I, I don't know who to listen to anymore. I don't even know how to listen to myself. Yeah. <laughs> so like, there's, it plays around so much with this stuff. And, you know, and it's, this stuff is kind of invisibly opening and unlocking door, you know, pathways through dialogue trees. The combat is, is dialogue tree yeah. as well, because it invokes the same skills. Because when you're in, like, in combat, you're kind of asserting yourself physically, so they weren't going to attack you, or you might need motor skills to make yourself be accurate. So is that, does that mean each fight is, like, handwritten? Yeah, like, it's, yeah it is. It, it, it bears a lot of, like, it is, it is isometric in the same way as a, as a traditional CRPG, but it has a tremendous interactive fiction heritage, I think. Like, there's an IF. Like, it could be a text game to some extent, I think. Um, the other thing, maybe, maybe the thing that I was going to say uh, that struck, really struck me is it's possible quite early to find out what your actual name is, but you still give yourself a name. And I really like that, that there's, while you are, and, you know, you don't have a memory, it's very realistic about letting you kind of just find that stuff and not dwell on it, not that kind of cliche of the kind of mystery story where you find out you're someone else. Towards, you know what I mean, that kind of thing? Like, did you do the conversation with your own police unit? And your actual partner. Yeah. Because you can phone the police station and say, like, who am I? Um, <laughs> like, I'm a policeman, I think. And you, you get your actual partner, but they all think you're an asshole. 
And so <laughs> people keep coming on the phone to be like, oh, you, you're, an, you're an idiot, aren't you? And like, yeah. And then you, can ask, you have to try and find a way of saying that you don't know who you are without saying who you are. Or like, without like, copying to the fact that you, you genuinely don't know. So it's like, if I were to... If I had lost my badge and you were to get me a new badge, <laughs> what would it say on the badge? <laughs> I don't think that covers it at all. <laughs> so and, I've and lost... No, it doesn't, and no one tells you. <laughs> so I went through that, and now I've lost my police badge. <laughs> I don't dare. Yeah, you realise how quickly that conversation, if you choose, like, I think Volition suggests that you actually check your pocket, and you realise you have lost it. And then, yeah, it's... it's... Oh, yeah, oh, no, it's so <laughs> embarrassing. And then afterwards, I think it's your esprit de corps skill has you kind of imagine the conversation they have when you hang up, which is a really interesting storytelling idea. Yeah, so, so, so the world is being fleshed it, out. Yeah. And it's just, and I think maybe it depends on how much, I don't know if it, it changes based on how you feel about yourself, but then I just, what, long conversation between everyone in the office going like, who is that? Oh, it was character's name. It, what, what's he doing? I don't think he knows. And like, it's like, back and forth, he told me this, and he told me this, and it didn't make any sense. Do we need to call him in now? Give him a couple of days. Like he'll figure it out. Like so he uses all these amazing tricks to um, to do exposition. Like yeah. this is a fantasy, fully f- full fantasy world, as much as it looks like the 1970s. It's kind of there. There it is not meant to have any relationship with our world, but they do have telephones and stuff like that, and a cars, um, which all look kind of weird, different, but you know evocative. Yeah. And it means that the the tools that you use need in the game, you don't need it to explain to you, you know, because you know because. I do tend to get tired in a lot of fantasy RPGs when I need the exposition to tell me that the magical stone of Angrar is in fact a phone. You know, yeah. in this game, it's a phone. You know, that's really although really weirdly useful. you can choose to not know. <laughs> so you can like go to a bookshop and the bookshop says what you sell here, and it's like, well, we sell romance, crime stories, uh, mystery novels, and board games. And you can say, slow down. What's a book? <laughs> and get like the law for <laughs> like uh, but you also have skills like yeah you have the speed of core which tells you about like the force but then there's encyclopedia which just pipes up to tell you like, you know this oh by the way the thing that they were talking about is this yeah I do love that one part of your brain is just encyclopedia yeah. and it's just a pedant <laughs> it just shows up like actually but if you don't put any skill into it then it is not going to pipe up <laughs> yeah. so you're never going to know anything about the world and that might be what, exactly what you want how long is the demo that you guys have played? Well, if you want to have a sort of crisis of your own, <laughs> go play for an hour. Because then you have... So, so it does end at a certain point. Um, it, just, it just sounds incredibly dense. It like is. You've played it for an so hour and I've, you've got like 12 So funny the game also out. has an in-game clock. I don't know exactly what that affects. I know that when you have a certain thought gestating, like if you're getting your shit together, that takes half an hour. And you have to just walk around and do other things and eventually you will, it will pop and say, congratulations, you've now got your shit together um, and um, and uh, I think maybe I had a very immersive experience of this because I did play it first thing this morning at the start of the show with a bit of a sore head and had that kind of lived experience it's, of it's my, me well I re- resonated very <laughs> I felt profoundly got at actually um, but, but, but the, uh, it does end at a certain point I, I think it's I got confused because I think someone was saying that it lasts a certain amount of in-game time so you have a certain amount of game time to do whatever you want but then um, my own kind of like this game is real sort of moment was when I was sat playing it and I was almost finishing I was doing a really interesting conversation with an interesting character the person who names you actually kind of give, encourages you you have a conversation about names and you can have a conversation that's like why are we having a conversation about names this feels really suitish and kind of like we've only just met like to launch straight into this straight away and like let's not second guess this we're actually getting on that kind of thing um, and then I could hear it does a thing where sometimes a ring will appear on your character's head 
with a node on it, and that means you've heard something. So it does your other senses in a really interesting way. And uh, so that almost becomes an interactive, the, 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 the hearing becomes an interactable object, or the smell, that kind of thing. And in real life, I just heard the developer of my shoulder going, no, don't worry, it's, it's okay. When he finishes this conversation, <laughs> his demo will end. And, I knew, and, and then that conversation with me was like, but I was only like halfway through the conversation and I could see the big, and if you ever played a text a game with text dialogue, the sea of unclicked conversation options was like eight long. <laughs> and each of them was like, let's talk more about what it kind of means to name oneself. So, like, let's, and, and, sure, I got half an hour. And I, I had that quote, and I could feel like the, the ambient presence of somebody waiting, and I, I didn't realize I'd been sat there for an hour, and I just went straight to the bottom and went, that's all for now. And then left <laughs> in real life and in the game. I, like, I have to goad a conversation in like, both levels of the Matrix at the same time. <laughs> It's, it's quite good. It's, it's, yeah, it's I know we've rambled on about it a lot, but it's like, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect. I'd only seen the art stuff for when it was Furies and dead impressed. Yeah. Like, almost a bit shamed by how good some <laughs> of the writing is. <laughs> well, it's, it's being made in Estonia, so it's not even first language. Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> Where in the building can people go to play Disco oh, Elysium? Yes. Indie zone so, yeah. over there. Just it's over there. that way tomorrow. Um, on that note, uh, does anyone have the time? 20, 20 past. 20 past, okay. Is that good? Um, Alex, did you have another game to talk I, about? I've managed to not play a single thing, but I did watch someone playing Below, but what I can't really... Below? Because, yeah, Below is sort of low-key here it's in a way. like, oh, you know that game that people have been really excited about for the past four or five years that was on E3 and blah, 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 and it's made by Capybara Games, and, you know, it looked really beautiful... Well, it's on one screen in the Xbox area over there. <laughs> yeah, you can just go uh, play And it. you can play it. And there's not even a very big queue because everyone is equally surprised. Um, <laughs> I, uh, and it, it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. Kind of just uh, lots of beautiful dark greens. <laughs> it's very, very dark. You, uh, your character is minute. So I, I didn't play it, so I can't really talk about it that much. So I'm being put a bit on the spot. There, I played it. <laughs> what? Why didn't you say? Not here. You I watched it, me like, dying. In November. Oh. Fantastic Arcade. Oh, cool. Um, oh, so it's been... Okay, right. Yeah, I was surprised at how... I guess I didn't know what it was at all. <laughs> so I was going to be surprised no matter what. Oh, I'm surprised this exists. Um, it is gorgeous. Um, it's very much a, a hack and slash... I think I expected, because I did Swords and Sorcery and other games I can't recall right now. The prize of Swords and Sorcery, I think they made like a puzzle bobble game. They used to do like license <laughs> oh, puzzle games. They did games. Um, uh, Light and Magic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they did um, Clash of Heroes. Clash of Heroes. The inexplicably quite good Might yeah, Magic Clash of Heroes. Um, yeah, they did that, time, that, that, time thing as well. Oh, yeah, so for Time Force. Yeah, yeah. They used to do like, uh, this is Capybara, used to do like. Uh, work for hire for like UB or other companies mm. like on these little license things and then they just made the Swords and Sorcery and then that was right at the beginning of indie sort of yeah. indie rising I guess their, their catalogue is actually pretty eclectic um, but yeah as far as I played you just the combat stuff was just these little red dots that come towards you and you kind of swipe at them and they are destroyed <laughs> um, and then you can stop at, at like campfires and craft but the crafting was like combine four fish, and that makes a fish potion. <laughs> or I guess it was soup, I don't know. Uh, fish potion, bit. soup. Um, and you have like, you just have health and hunger, I think, or you're two meters, and then... Um, but I was surprised at how, I guess, 
almost action-y it was. It was kind of just about killing things as far as I played. And it did. I got the impression there are secrets because um, I got stuck for a long time. So <laughs> maybe the way to progress is a secret. Um, but I found like a little area behind a waterfall that was difficult to, to get to um, and difficult to realize was there. Is so, there a kind of like a sort of very bonfire-y feel that you kind of... Mm. You kind of you, because it's so dark and the what bonfire game? is quite a warm Dark light. and bonfires, Alex. <laughs> I can feel some low <laughs> No. Um, <laughs> but it is like Dark Souls, isn't it? I don't know because I haven't played Dark <laughs> Souls very much. At the end of the day, I'm like the one isn't, person who won't compare things isn't to Dark everything. Souls. Um, but, you, yeah. but are you kind of like venturing out from the bonfire and kind of like then are you compelled to return by some sort of system? Death, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's very minimalist and very um, beautiful, and I think. I don't know. I hope there's some kind of like mystery thing going on because I think that's, I think that's what I was expecting. Was like I saw mysterious intrigue. geometrical things. Mm. Yeah, uh, and I didn't, I didn't play very long, um, but I also did get stuck. <laughs> so uh, it, seems, it seems like an interesting show floor game. For some, like, I've, I've actually had this feeling quite a lot this year, Rose. That um, there's a lot of really really good games, and most of the games we've talked about today are actually perfect examples of this. That. Uh, are probably ideally experienced over a long period of kind of like submersion with them at home. And that's not to say they shouldn't be, you know, like it's great to go and try things. But I felt like, I know there's, there's plenty of like really good short form games as well. But like I was just sat and I played Cultist Simulator today, for example, and had that feeling of like, oh wow, I kind of want to be able to pick this apart um, at my own speed um, below. Very much felt like that. I watched a couple of people play it as well. And there's a lot of like, I'm lost in a big field. But because I'm in, the uh, Xbox booth, I feel like I should probably move on rather mm. than like yeah, yeah, yeah. tease this mystery for a long time. Similarly, like uh, Phoenix Point or like, you know, the strategy games and uh, uh, Order of Magnitude are all things that are probably yeah. like unfold. But I've noticed so actually nice um, with Heat Signature, uh, when I took it to Res and EGX and stuff before release, uh, we'd get really good testing uh, feedback. You know, we'd get to watch people play through the tutorial and into the game and do some missions and stuff. And I've shown it once since release, or watch people play. Um, and now that the, it has a tutorial and then the intro credits come up and then the game proper starts, and almost everyone stops at when the intro <laughs> credits come up, which is like just before it's got started. Like you haven't played any actual missions yet. Um, and I think it's just because we give, there's just that stopping point, there's just punctuation. Like you do the tutorial, uh, title comes up, and you're f in a show environment that gives you like an opportunity to reflect on, oh, have I spent too long? Is someone waiting to play this? And then, yeah. People move on. Whereas when we didn't have that, people would go straight into missions. And Maybe that is why I've resonated so profoundly with Disco Elysium at this particular event. Because a lot of this event is about walking around going like, should I do that? I should, uh, that person looks like they'd like to sit down more. Oh, I could, oh, I recognize him. But I don't know if that's just Twitter. I'll go. Like, that, you know, the sort of rich internal life of, of rest. All of us. Indeed. We should probably, so we've probably got about half an hour remaining. Is it about half past? I don't know what the time is. Thanks, John T. John T's nodding. I love that I can, everyone like... Is he nodding? He's nodding. John T was nodding. Yes, it is. We should, we should move on to some questions. So as John T said at the beginning, uh, the way this works is uh, if you have a question, I think probably the best thing to do would be to put your hand up uh, and then to, uh, I will point at somebody and then approach the microphone. Because I've seen people do it with like the queuing system, but that strikes me as... Presumptuous. Yeah, presumptuous. I'd like to mask how short that queue could potentially be. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, if you have any questions, now would be a good time to put a hand up. Yes. Hello. Hello. I have a question for, I guess, Tom more than anybody. 
What would you say is the biggest thing, the biggest thing you realized since becoming a developer uh, that you didn't really understand as a games journalist? Mm. Um, I think, hmm. How to make a game. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of broad. <laughs> Uh, sure, if that counts, that would be it. <laughs> I, I remember one of the first things that really surprised me was that making scripted scenes is really hard. I assumed it was easy because they were in games a lot and I hated them. And I was like, well, this must be the easy content to make because I keep doing it, even though it's really bad. And the systemic stuff must be really, really difficult and um, uh, must be really hard to make like mechanics that apply in all situations. And then, on Gunpoint at least, I found that the stuff that applied in all situations was really easy to make. Like, Crosslink was just... Like, I don't know, 12 lines of code or something, and then because I didn't tell it not to work anywhere else, it worked everywhere. Whereas, like, trying to get Conway to, like, crouch at a door for a certain amount of time and then get back up at the end of it and for someone to say something at a certain point was a fucking nightmare. <laughs> like, days and days of work. So I was really surprised about that because the payoff seems so much lower to me. And obviously, you know, for different kinds of games, it's, it's the other way around. But uh, for any game that isn't about scripted scene and about story, uh, I don't understand why anyone ever does <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Can't think if I'd learned anything, but no. Um, so, recently I've been thinking about games that I really want to play, but there's some aspect of them that just like kills it for me. Mm. So, uh, I was thinking about, you know, Soma had that mod where it removed the monster, and I was thinking how, like, I'd absolutely love to play Amnesia, but I'm just like too mentally weak to like put myself <laughs> through that. Um, so I didn't know if there was any games or anything like... I feel this is one of those hard questions that you probably like looked at hours before the podcast normally, but if there's a <laughs> game that um, has some sort of mechanic that you really wish wasn't there that would really change that game and really make it maybe more interesting in a different direction? Yeah, I can speak to this, Tom. Yep, go ahead. Um, so I actually really... I love horror, but I really hate jump scares. Like, I hate... Specifically, I hate designed pre-planned jump scares, which is like 95% of jump scares in almost everything, um, because I feel like I'm contending with the level designer more than the monster or the threat or the, whatever the nature of that threat is. And so um, something, maybe a recent example of this would be something like Resident Evil 7, where that initial sense of dread is amazing. It's kind of exactly what I want out of a horror game. But as soon as it starts to promise that it's going to do a big old boo. I get really kind of like, I don't want to anymore now. And it's because, it's, it's for two things. It's one, because I'm very scared. And the other side of it is that, I'm, but I'm not scared of something, I'm scared of something that I feel like exists outside of the game, which is, and I feel this way about a lot of horror movies actually as well, and I love horror movies, but it's like, you know, I like to be, I like to be surprised, which maybe, a jump scare is a form of surprise. But I, I like to be sort of also immersed, and, that, and I find that a jump scare makes, puts me in the mindset of, Okay, level designer, which cupboard is it, you prick? And that's not, like, I'm not then engaging. And then, so the game for me, and I know I've banged on about it on the podcast a lot, but, like, Alien Isolation for me was such a revelatory moment for that because, yes, it has lots of jump scares, but to some extent, you kind of control them. It's like the perfect use of that idea because it's almost catharsis. It's like, I know I just fucked up. I know I just knocked a can over. <laughs> And you wait a moment and you hear the kind of like the pitter patter of nasty feet. And then a big tail goes through you and you're like, shit. Um, but 
but you also earned it. And it's, you know, it's a well-animated jump scare. It has all of that kind of... Um, I don't know if anyone ever... Um, a couple of years ago, uh, when I was still working at PC Gamer, I had to stream Alien Isolation, like, all morning uh, for some reason. I can't remember why. I just had to sit and play it on Twitch for, like, a couple of hours. And... I felt compelled to like sh- like be active because no one wants to watch a Twitch stream of like here's a man in a locker, <laughs> he's still in the locker. So I was like I'm gonna run everywhere, and the game adapts to that really well. But like I kept getting like the most amazing accidental rhythm of like oh an android has grabbed me and then he pushed me and then the alien would come down out of the vent and hoist me back. <laughs> kind of came this kind of like almost a ama- like uh, jump scare as kind of ragdoll payoff, <laughs> kind of free running game. Um, that was good as well, but yeah, I think. Did you see? I'm afraid I can't remember the name, so if anyone knows it, uh, shout it out. But there was a horror game, a multiplayer horror game that's on Kickstarter, um, where the killer can see where the survivors are and they can spawn anywhere that's out of their sight range. So they just are a is bunch that, of monster that Jason, it's it's a Friday the 13th. I heard it wasn't. Oh. Uh, like maybe it started that way, but there's a post on RPS recently where, where it specifically wasn't. But anyway, that was a cool. Like, like that kind of jump scare, I feel like I'd be okay with because even though it is bullshit, it's human bullshit. Yes, yeah. <laughs> the no, best so, kind of bullshit. Yeah, grip. Um, uh, playing lots of AVP multiplayer, Aliens vs. Predator multiplayer, and the whole fun of that was like being the little runner alien and going like, Bup! and then like knowing that someone somewhere over 56k modem and just going, Shit! <laughs> and that's like <laughs> that's a, that's a magical. That's, that's that's what the internet can do for us. Um, that's it basically. The, I would, <laughs> um, the thing I'm dying to see a mod uh, do is. Uh, for Far Cry 5, just take out all the forced plot interruption things, like the bliss bullets and the hunter darts, and, and the other one where I think you just kind of pass out. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just have no ideas for how to actually get you into the story mission, so they've just they've come up with three different mechanics, all of which are the worst kind of bullshit. You should give, they should give you, like, uh, I know I've mentioned this in the podcast a lot, and maybe we're having one of those episodes, but, like, some kind, like, you know, it's a game, you maybe need to eat and drink, or poo. Or something. You have the, the, the poop timer and the, the scary Far Cry villain is all just waiting for you. <laughs> in the bathroom. In the loose. <laughs> like, oh no. Uh, I knew this day would come. Yeah. <laughs> in about six hours. Yeah. Ready for a monologue? How about you guys? It's not like this. <laughs> this guy gets it. It's uh, crafting stuff often mm. in a game which maybe isn't meant to do you know it isn't doesn't need crafting or doesn't feel like it needs crafting where crafting is clearly there to eke out time rather than yeah you know where you kind of have to find the sticks to do the thing but it's gating you from the thing that you wanted to do it's a really fascinating actual concrete examples there i was actually going to say um time limit in um xcom Mm. I know that's controversial because I know that it actually powers. I know it powers. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but I, I did not. I just did not enjoy having to make fast decisions. I mean, you know, making fast decisions, but having to rush things. And I know that's where a lot of tension came from. I know that those that design would not work without it. But I didn't enjoy the game as much as I wanted to as a result. Mm. It never really stops me playing these games, but there's lots of games from which I wish you could get rid of the money, mm. um, particularly RPGs, because I have played hundreds of hours of Oblivion in Skyrim, and I have never once in my life gone shopping in either of those games. I know there are stores where you can go buy spells and 
swords and stuff like that, I never ever use them because you come across stuff in the world. And so mm. eventually I come to a point in the game where it's starting to get a bit hard and I realize that I'm the richest person in the universe <laughs> and half of the material goods in that world are in my pockets and I've never <laughs> sold anything and I could just go and I, I end up sort of breaking the game at that point yeah. because I've stockpiled this stuff accidentally without caring about it and now to progress it's getting a bit tricky and so I end up going and selling everything I own having even more money and then just buying like 600 health potions and now everything is fine again yeah. and in fact too easy I'd say buying things is fundamentally unsatisfying in some ways but if you just find things there was a real problem way. with um, uh, so I spoke to the developers of uh, original Divinity and Original Sin 2 and they said that they had a problem I think it was in the, the first Divinity uh, yeah, Divinity 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 Sin where they uh, the, they just knew noticed that lots of players had so much money they just they, the entire um, uh, uh, sort of market of the game was completely messed up and it's because they weren't buying armor they were meant to be spending their money on armor and they weren't because uh, the armor system just wasn't kind of evident enough to players they didn't value it enough so they they would buy the best sword because you would you know the best weapons because they make a definable kind of effect on your game but then because they weren't buying any armor, they were stockpiling enormous amounts of money. The entire kind of um, uh, resource sort of system of the game broke down. And all because of completely, apparently unrelated thing, which was because they didn't value armor. Mm-hmm. How did they fix that? Uh, they made the armor system more evident and made it have more of an effect on the stats. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I feel like there are a lot of very, very successful genres that grow out of these kinds of like, hypercritical decisions about what people don't actually want to do. Um, and I was thinking about this last year when I was doing some Eurogamer about uh, survival games and the rise of PUBG and Fortnite. Um, because in a way, those games sort of stem from DayZ, which had a much more kind of simulationist kind of approach to what people want to do. Like, maybe you want to shoot each other, but maybe you just want to stockpile beans and live in the woods. Or maybe, you, you know, um, like, and I know that for a time, like, they were considering crafting systems and, and like, more of that kind of thing. And that, that stuff has its own life in, in survival games that have extensive crafting or housing systems and that kind of thing. Fortnite itself is half that game to some extent. And then almost, it's almost like a series of critical decisions get made and the kind of, the possibility space of that initial sandbox gets reduced down to what do people actually do? Well, in DayZ, what they do is run around and shoot each other. And while the first couple of months of the game had all of the emergent potential of like, what if I held you at gunpoint and stole your beans <laughs> and then made you run away? And, but eventually, because of the kind of, you know, the ultimately players learn how to succeed and they just go to like, I'll just shoot you. You know, the, the sort of all the emergent stuff that is supported by the simulation fades away and what you're left with is a shooter. So when that then happens is someone comes along and just makes that game. It's like, what if it was this day Z but without the, with a better multiplayer structure, no crafting, no kind of health or hunger, sorry, no hunger system or that kind of thing. No zombies. No zombies being inconvenient. Um, and then it's gigantic, right? And then, yeah, and then someone's like, what if that were free? And then it's the biggest game in the world. Well, the Fortnite is quite interesting because that, that brings the sort of the crafting and gathering bit back, but it makes a definable effect on, yes, on the shooting. Right. Yeah, it's, it's like it's all kind of plays. I mean, I'd, I'd argue, and I appreciate the moment I say this, that there's going to be like a ripple of like, oh no, from the crowd, but like MOBAs. Um, in some ways, we're like, what do people actually want to get out of MMO PvP? You know, arena PvP in, in, in MMOs was loved by many people, but it was also like a bolt onto a game that also required like a thousand hour investment to get a character to the point where you could actually meaningfully participate in it. So what if there was a game that just did that? 
at one, like straight away. And you didn't have to do all that extra stuff. There's a, lot of, there's a surprising amount, I think, of interesting design that happens and very successful design that happens when people just stop making simulation-y sort of assumptions about what people want, which is a shame yeah. because simulation-y assumptions are like the beautiful dream of games. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's the, the point at which people like, you know, Star Citizen is a perfect example of a simulation game that is extremely hard to make because it needs to be able to do everything. And, you know, someone in VR right now is just playing a spaceship light gun game pretty much getting the 10 percentile of that that they would actually get from Star Citizen. I don't know. We should probably answer some more questions. There's a thing. Hands. Yes, chap. The fastest hand. <laughs> oh, gosh. Sorry. Um, Sorry. Hello. Uh, I, uh, I'm an exhibitor here. Cool. Uh, this is the first time I've been to an event like this, both as someone showing off a game and as someone who is just interested in games, and there are a lot of them here. What can I do to get the best out of this? Ooh. This kind of event. <laughs> Sorry, what was the question? <laughs> Getting the best out of showing your game at an event like this. And, and seeing games. And seeing games as well. I always found that these events were most useful for testing in terms of exhibiting, like for promotional stuff. Um, I actually did get, I got more press coverage for Heat Signature out of, I think, EGX and to some extent Rezzed than I did from other events for some reason, like um, uh, even like GDC. Um, but it's always the most value for me is just watching people play the game and just um, getting to see them hit all the problems that they're going to hit. And you can technically do that outside of um, these events, but these are great because the people who are going to stop by and play our game aren't necessarily people who already know about it. Whereas when I do testing online, it's all people who already know about the game, and so it's a bit skewed towards people who already are interested mm. in this thing. And so you get like much more of a torture test here where people who don't know who the fuck you are or what the hell your game's about come by and play and stumble over everything, and you find out all those problems. Um, and you can actually see this. Uh, it's very common for indie games that have been to a lot of shows. The first level is amazingly well-polished and just beautifully intuitive <laughs> and flows. And then I, I found this with Mushroom 11 after you get past the first... like. 15, 20 minutes, that so it just been absolutely magical, perfect, and then it suddenly just hits this difficulty wall, because <laughs> I imagine they didn't have as much testing from events like oh, that. Oh, that's when you want to get people off the stand. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, because of that, I was always really keen for people to sit and play my game for as long as possible. I was always like, they'd feel guilty and get up, and I was like, no, no, please stay there. I've never seen someone play level five before. <laughs> I think the, the other side, I think, is the... Um, you know, if you're going to see other games, you get a snapshot of what people are making right now, and you also get to see the kind of the breadth of ideas that are around kind of the areas they're exploring, but also how popular things yeah. are. So you get, you know, when you see a crowd, then you know that that's, that's something people are gravitating to. If Goose to. Game is in the room, you'll, yeah. <laughs> you'll learn a lot about what people like. <laughs> so it's good for research <coughs> as well. I think I joked about it earlier about how kind of awkward things can be in terms of like talking to people and wanting to talk down. I think that's true of everybody sometimes at events. Or maybe I'm speaking about myself, but I think it can be awkward to uh, and I say this maybe having had some experience um, when I was working on PC working PC gamer, I worked on the first PC gamer weekender and was very sort of like very anxious that people were having a good time. And I found that a lot of people are kind of waiting to be reached out to. Uh, not physically. Um, <laughs> but if someone is hovering at, you know, near three games they will probably sit down and play the one where someone goes, hey, this is my game. Mm -hmm. I made this. And, and uh, you know, I, um, I like, am in this industry, um, and I might have tell the story before, but, like, because of the Eurogamer Expo in, like, 2011, when I was playing Dragon Age 2, 
and the Xbox red ringed, and I turned around, and John T, was, who's over there, was laughing at me. <laughs> and he was the editor of official Xbox magazine at the time, and then my entire life changed. But that, and that was, I mean, that's not, what I'm not saying is laugh at people. <laughs> but, Get laughed at. <laughs> yeah, but, like, but what that did is then we had a conversation, and then that was actually the most valuable thing I got out of that event. And actually always the most valuable thing I get out of an event is meeting somebody cool or from any part of the industry or not. Um, really, like the games are important, and the white people are here, and, and seeing games before release is exciting. But it's like oh, I met this person who making a game that maybe I'm probably not going to play, but they have a really fascinating process or something like that. It's also really good uh, when you meet people either around your booth or anywhere else when you tell them what your game is to practice different pitches, try and explain it one way, see if their eyes light up, and if they don't, try something else next time. And I kept changing the way that I explained gunpoint, uh, for example, uh, to people because first few attempts at it, you just explain it in just a total blank look. <laughs> and you can definitely tell when you get through. Like that sometimes they're like, oh, okay. And that's, yeah, actually, I, uh, I went to a few shows showing a game I was working on called Beast of Balance, which is kind of like a weird game where you pl- balance plastic models on a plinth thing, which is then connected to an, I- um, uh, an iPad, which, and then you're kind of playing a kind of a strategy come balancing game. It's quite a hard to explain, and doing it for three days day in, day out, and losing your voice actually is really good for honing exactly the, the efficient, exactly shorter, how shorter. efficient you can be, the be minimal spans. number of words yeah, <laughs> put on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, um, but it's good for just, it, it's quite good for understanding what is good about your game and what mm. people yeah. gravitate to, what, what is the important thing about it and how do you sell it to people. Hopefully that helps. Um, do you have any more questions? Yes. You say. Uh, John, do you the time? I appreciate that we're getting booted out. Uh, 26. 26. Oh, we've got loads of time. Fine. Hmm. Good. Let's keep going. Um, I enjoyed your chat the other week about uh, Into the Breach and mm. how you kind of, some of you felt that you liked certain aspects of how it had been tweaked and uh, yeah. others of you didn't. Uh, and for me, I felt like it had been sort of laser targeted at exactly what I wanted out mm. of it. Um, as pretty much as soon as I watched your videos of it, Tom, um, I knew that I was going to love it, and I did and played it constantly for you know, two or three weeks and did all the achievements and everything, like, which doesn't happen very often. Um, I was just wondering if you guys had any other games, any times when you felt that a game has almost been designed perfectly for your particular tastes. Hmm. Is Matthew here? Matthew Davis? He was around earlier. I just wanted to know if I get a commission for that sale. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I feel like Invisible Link, although uh, I didn't know I wanted it until I played it. Like it, it felt like, oh, I like all these things, and I like them in this particular combination. I didn't know I would. Um, so yeah, design design for me by someone who knows me better than I know myself. <laughs> I guess for me it was Spelunky, which I used to talk about a lot on the podcast when I used to be on the podcast. Um, again, I guess I didn't know I wanted it before I found it, but I was really into roguelikes and I was really into platformers. Um, and it took over my life. So. <laughs> and Spelunky's here in the retro zone. Right? <laughs> yeah. Oh man, the retro <laughs> zone. Playing like, all the old classics. 2011. You <laughs> 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 put Skyrim in the retro zone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Alex? I don't know. I don't know. I tend to kind of... Uh, I think playing a new game is about discovery rather than kind of joining. I don't know. No, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, I mentioned it already, but uh, Torment Tides of Numenera was this for me. 
uh, as a huge RPG nerd anyway, um, and someone who loved that setting from the pen and paper game, um, uh, obviously there was an element of like, oh, you're making that? Okay. Like, I, I have already bought it. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, more specifically, I really loved... Uh, I didn't realize I was waiting for an RPG that... Um, wasn't interesting, and this is really the torment side of it, the Planescape side of its heritage, but like I'd missed RPGs that weren't quite so resolutely on the traditional kind of like hero's journey uh, fantasy arc that typifies, and I love Bioware games, as people listen to the podcast know, but like there is a, and you know, there's a commonality of arc of what you expect in terms of what you expect in terms of setup and resolution, and I just basically wanted a very wordy game about like weirdos, basically, is what I really wanted. <laughs> Wordy um, games about weirdos. Yeah, actually, I, re- I replayed it recently, but another game that did this uh, at the time was um, Xenoclash. I remember Xenoclash. The game about punching like grimdark Sesame Street characters. <laughs> like, and um, and uh, that, uh, I revisited it recently because it's got such a phenomenal art style. It's kind of like um, somewhere between like Hieronymus Bosch, Dave McKean, John Blanche kind of fantasy world with like really deeply bad voice acting but in a way that makes the whole thing feel better like <laughs> that is those kinds of experiences are the ones that always get me in that way in that sort of like oh man why aren't there more of these and did anyone uh, I've mentioned it before but no one knew what the hell I was talking about last time <laughs> the Xenoclash guys did another game about rolling Rock of Ages, Rock of Ages. Yeah. no sorry um uh, about a giant rolling pin type thing that's taking over a whole planet oh. and you're in the air trying to get away oh, from yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If people don't know the game, you sound like a complete madman trying to explain it. <laughs> no, this is a real thing. There's definitely a game about this. Yeah, Did you, that come out or anything? I don't know. I just remember watching a video. Yeah, no, you, it never came out. Oh, man. I don't know if they're still working on it. I know the, the last game they did, which I think was just last year, was Rock of Ages 2. So if they're still working on it, it's on, in the background somewhere. So they went with the, the ball, ago. not the rolling pin. <laughs> Egg of rolling pin. <laughs> That's what I would have called it. <laughs> uh, do we have any more questions from the audience? Anyone want to stick a hand up? Anyone at all? Yeah. The microphone is yours. As um, when Star Trek Bridge Crew came out, I thought it was like a fan's dream. Mm. Um, is there any other game or fiction that you would apply that setup to? Like, one I think you would like would be like Warhammer Titan Crew, probably. <laughs> Which would be great, like mech warrior, bigger mech. Yeah, so you, you're talking specifically about the kind of VR... Um, yeah, just sitting with your mates. So yeah, um, so a Bridge Crew is like... Uh, uh, if people ever played like Artemis Bridge Simulator, it's like that, but with the license that that really needed. Um, yeah, is that, sorry, is that the question? Were you done? Yeah, good, sorry, yeah. Um, yeah, so basically games where you and some friends put on VR headsets and are... Well, Star Trek Bridge Crew is obviously you are the, a bridge crew on a... Star Trek spaceship. Um, uh, yeah, other uses for that setup. Well, now I want the Titan one. <laughs> yeah. Sounds great. Um, yeah, I think there's loads of potential for that, actually. Um, I've been playing a lot of VR stuff recently for, for some work stuff, and um, I'd love, like, there's real, there's real potential in, like, the war room kind of environment where, I mean, you know, go to licenses that I like. But actually, hang on. No, I want the game where you are the people on the rebel base on Yarvin during the attack on the Death Star just staring at a map <laughs> as a little bar goes like the Death Star will be in firing range in seven minutes and then eventually you just go oh, and that's it that, that, um, <laughs> uh, there's lots of, but there's lots of good like VR is really good for this like VR is good for those sort of like single 
room kind of experiences. And I think there'd be loads of, load, there'd be a real home for that kind of thing. Now I want um, like a map war room, like in Dragon Age, where you have a giant like parchment map, mm. but you can only choose to invade a place by literally stabbing it with a dagger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the map gets increasingly <laughs> fucked up for more. Yeah, and it's like it's like a competitive RTS, so you're both or both players. Are... <laughs> and if you want to like draw a line of attack, you've got to carve. <laughs> Actually, um, uh, Brass Tactics is kind of already like that. That's the I think I talked about that on the pod recently, which yeah. is the Oculus war game that looks like the map from Game of Thrones or clockwork things, and you sort of like direct your troops and you can see the other person directing their troops and basically only the very slight amount of real human empathy created by watching someone else float around with their hands is the only thing that stops you like making gestures or like dancing at people (laughs) and so on Um, in terms of actual fictions though that fit this really well um, I haven't thought about this before but I feel like there's good mileage in modern spy films which mm. always have Tom Cruise off doing something dramatic while a team of other people are yeah. sat in a van somewhere. Simon Pegg simulator. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you could have a good a good line in just being the team of hackers or spies and drone operators that are, and maybe there's just like an NPC, which is the actual the Arnold Schwarzenegger or Tom Cruise hero that's off doing stuff, and you're just like crouched on top of a lift trying to hack something before you yeah. get crushed at the top of it. Yeah, yeah, that's a really nice <laughs> idea. Yeah, like multiplayer um, VR vignette-based 30 Flights of Loving. <laughs> yeah, someone was... And again, I don't know the name, sorry, but uh, someone was making a multiplayer game co-op where one of you is the agent, the other one's the headphone guy and has to turn off the security at the right time for the agent to get through. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a bit like the, the quadruple. E, the cowboy has a little bit of that where you're programming the thing that's going to yeah, let you go through. You. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, um, I've always kind of... You know uh, games that do chases? I'm thinking probably quite a lot of Uncharted, like where, where they have you go in the, the, you're going through the dense kind of city, through the boxes, and it's really tight kind of sort of um, lanes, and you're taking right-hand court, sort of it's really busy. But it's like obviously been play-tested for t- three years mm. to make sure that half the time you go the right way and you don't crash into stuff, and if you actually make the cinematic trip through it that you're meant to without restarts and things... Um, I would love to play the, the game that manages to nail the kind of like the the born or you know the born kind of running through the city and over the balustrades and kind of up stuff, kind of a bit like Assassin's Creed, but Assassin's Creed's a bit sort of weird and janky and it's not dense enough. Mm. You kind of want to feel like you are, you know, maybe it's a turn-based game. Would that be not in VR then? No, I don't think. Well, you could be. It could be. It could be. But but I'm thinking actually, it's probably like a turn-based thing where like sort of the thing comes in and you've got to sort of plot your course around it, and maybe situational awareness through VR is what kind of enables it. There's another scene in Heavy Rain, which became a meme briefly, where like there's a chase sequence, and it's just a series of quick time events, (laughs) and you can fail each quick time event, and it keeps going. But you're you're the guy that's you're. Just the, the worst guy man. you're controlling, yeah, is just the clumsiest man at that point. <laughs> like he's running through a supermarket and just crashing into aisles and knocking watermelons on the floor and slamming through walls of chickens and. And you're still like assailant, you're just not getting any closer. Yeah. <laughs> so when this, when this question was asked, I had the thought about the kind of like pit crew game. Like if you know if you're going to do the racing game, like the racing game is happening, but the pit crew is a bunch of people with VR headsets on, just doing. I don't know anything about cars. Um, <laughs> just doing cars. And, um, and the... Where, where, where are you going with the car? I'm having the car done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They do the MOT. 
then they clean the Not pipe. Not pet stuff, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know. But that idea, right? But you could do that for like a sort of Joe Danger style like movie set thing where like a, a stunt is going to happen and you're all having to like activate the pyro or like throw the glass or I don't know anything about how films are made either. <laughs> but that's the joy of it. Do a big jump. I, <laughs> do just, do just a be big Star Trek bridge crew but you're one of the guys that has to slide open the, the door. Thing. Yeah, you exactly. open the doors. You mess time it and Shadow yeah. just slams into it. Yeah. You are the bridge. Yeah. Yeah. Star Trek bridge crew. Bridge but <laughs> you are Wesley Crusher. <laughs> That's it. Sorry. Um, good. In with that. No. How, many, what, how much time we got, John T? Cool. Uh, guys, feel free to put hands up with questions if there are any more things to rip upon. Yes. There's always exactly one, which has the faint air of desperation. It's enough for me to get nervous and then for it to be okay. Hello. Hi. Um, yeah, just made me think about the VR thing because yeah. I recently picked up um, a Vive and um, Skyrim. Skyrim VR. Yeah. And the bit in it that I wasn't expecting to enjoy was actually talking to people. Because hmm. the sense of like presence of being stood in front of an, a character and then being able to kind of like walk away and kind of <laughs> Columbo them and like come back and like <laughs> it felt like I was in a play. And I wondered whether that's because I was meeting it halfway. But it made me think about is there a bit in a game maybe or games that uh, you didn't expect to like at all and it was the last thing you would have thought you would expect from that type of game mm. that you, were, you did actually really enjoy it. God, imagine if they still did the face zoom from Oblivion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be terrible. Yeah. That's not what happens, luckily. It's like you're in a little kind of play box. And you can be like, yeah. Yes, yes, the dragons are the, a problem. I just I can't imagine there was a really great little... Someone did like live-action Skyrim once. Someone see this? It did, twi- did good Twitter like a couple of years ago, which was just like a man opens the door in first person, but his hands are in, actually in front of his face. Um, because that's not where humans put their hands. And then the guy turns around like night, on his torso and says, like, hello, and then just walks into some chairs. <laughs> um, and, like, yeah. <laughs> it's very good. I'll put the link in the show notes. It's not that's helpful to you at all. Um, I think I, I find, like, in terms of... I appreciate that the question wasn't specifically about VR, but, like, it does make me think about the things I found do surprisingly work for me in VR and the things that... Um, like I think the things that have worked for me, I, I mentioned on the podcast before that like I was not surprised that VR is mostly good for like gun games and every other verb is hard. But I was, I have been consistently impressed by a lot of the VR cinema stuff that I've seen, which aren't well. Let's not get into that argument. But like they're not interactive in the traditional way. But what they're very good at is making is creating a sense of the physical presence. Maybe this is what you were saying: the physical presence of a character, even if you're just watching them sort of enact a story. There's an Oculus experience called. Um, Dear Angelica, which is done using Facebook Quill. I think Facebook Quill was even created for it. You're kind of in the middle of this. You're, being, you're listening to a, a girl write a letter to her favorite movie star, and they have a connection. That's the kind of thing you discover. And it's done in kind of amazing pop art that is drawn around you in 360 degrees as you experience it. And you can't interact with it at all, but you feel this kind of like um, tremendous sense of not place is the wrong word, because you're not in a place. It's like, we, need, we don't really have a word for, like, what if you were inside a picture? Uh, it's not a place. It's more like you're inside, like, a, an artistic kind of moment, but it also feels physically real to you, and that's a really complicated, like... Maybe this doesn't answer the question at all. It's just something I like. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Gentlemen? I, um, if you told me this feature was in there, I definitely could have told you I was going to like it, but I had no idea it would be uh, in Far Cry 5. In fact, okay, so Far Cry Primal is my favorite Far Cry game, uh, as you all know if you listen to the podcast, because I won't shut up about it, and that introduced javelins, and 
for javelins are in Far Cry 5, they're just called spades. <laughs> the fact that you can pick up 12 spades and then throw them directly, like not just into people, but you can pin them to the wall with a spade. <laughs> and it's like stupendously powerful. That's amazing. You knew you would like that, Tom. That's not like, oh. I didn't know it would be in the game. Oh, you though. just know it, it would like, be javelins. surprise to discover. <laughs> yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah, got a this. pleasant surprise of javelins. So a game that, that I shouldn't like, nobody should probably like, uh, Heavy Rain. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> it comes out at last. It's like, I don't know, it just, this is really embarrassing, but like, <laughs> the whole uh, father-son thing got to me. I, I had probably a son about the same age as... Uh, was it Ethan? No, it's J- Sean. J- Sean. Oh, Sean. Jason. Jason. Jason and Sean. Jason. All yeah. together now. No. Um, like. And like, just like, it, it, the bastard fucking worked. <laughs> it's really annoying. I was kind of annoyed myself as I was playing it, but like, I found it genuinely sort of, oh, it, it just, I, I played it quite intensively, you know, until its end. And I felt incredibly let down by its ending. I thought it was a real fuck up, but, but, um, all of the kind of being in an opulently rendered sort of house that you're in at the start of the game. I really enjoyed opening all the cupboards and stuff. Shouldn't have it. It's a terrible, it is a genuinely, objectively terrible game, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> I guess I never expected to like flight simulators. I got really into X-Plane mm. for a little while there, and I'm not, I mean, not into planes, I'm not into flying, and I, at that point I wasn't into simulators at all. Um, but there's lots of little switches on those carpets, <laughs> and it's really satisfying to flip them and work out what each one of them does. And, and like previously, the most I'd ever gone down that route was like Flight Simulator, Flight mm. Simulator '98, which you could basically play with the keyboard and just skip most of those things. And so, getting into actually learning what the buttons on the cockpit do and how to properly take off and all those sorts of things was was super satisfying. Yeah, I guess it's when you, you learn that you want something from a game that you didn't realize that you actually. Mm. Did you play many of the, the simu- you know, like the, the German simulator games? Like, obviously, American truck simulator, European truck simulator, they are stone cold classics. Do you mean, like, things the, published by Excalibur? Yeah. yeah. Like, we're talking, we're talking farming, we're talking buses, we're talking all that. Underground all trains, underground overground trains. trains. OMSI Slightly underground is train. amazing. Which one? OMSI, which is not... Oh, yeah. The Excalibur oh, God, OMSI was made... It's, a, it's an East German bus simulator set in... Berlin during the 1980s and it's designed to simulate a very particular kind of bus and it is so incredibly evocative of a time and a place and you just you drive around you pick up passengers you take them where they're going you get back to the bus depot you've got another 30 minutes before you have to do your route again so you just what do you do what do you do for the 30 minutes I normally keep a book on my desk and read the book (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you can't fast forward time but there's just something (laughs) why would you the, the use of sound in that game in particular just creates such a sense of place that it's just a lovely, relaxing hmm. way to do it. But a lot of the Excalibur simulation games, I played them, they were pretty ropey. A lot mm. of them, they're very basic in terms of the amount of simulation they were doing. <laughs> and on Shut that up. note... <laughs> we're, being, are we being kicked out? The police, the, back, okay. the police were at the back. Thank you so much for coming and thank you for listening. If this is a podcast that you're experiencing and you're driving a car or something, I don't know. Um, if you in this room would like to join us in the pub after, I believe there's RPS drinks at the Captain Kid. Yep, which, which is about is, five minutes walk from here. Yeah, it's down towards Wapping Station. Um, that's where we're doing that. I'll record a separate outro for this uh, for a different point because I don't want to... 
But yeah, thank you guys so much for coming, asking questions and listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, and yeah, and if you'd like to know more about our podcast, you can find it at creatingcrowbar.com. Thanks for Hello, it's me again, doing that outro that past me just said the future me would do. Well, I'm doing it now. If you'd like to send us a question for a future episode of The Crate and Crowbar, you can email us at questionsincrowbar.com. You can find us on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash crate and crowbar. In fact, very soon you'll be able to find a video version of this episode on our channel as soon as we get the files from Res. If you listen to this in the future, that's probably already happened. We've got a very complicated present, future, past thing going on with this entire show. Nonetheless, it will be there eventually. And as ever, our... Uh, episodes, everything we do is only possible thanks to the support of our Patreon backers. You can find out more about the Crate and Crowbar Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. I got it the right way around for once. Uh, I won't bother with all of our Twitter handles or anything like that uh, for this particular episode because we forgot to say it on the day. So what you're going to do, however, you can find us collectively at Crate and Crowbar. Thanks for listening. <laughs>